Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dr. Clifton Chan is a physiotherapist with a special interest in the health of performing artists. In particular, he works with musicians and hypermobile dancer patients. You can find him in his Potts Point Clinic. Clifton also teaches up-and-coming physiotherapists at Macquarie University in Sydney. And today we are talking about hypermobility and what it means for performing artists. Clifton, welcome this afternoon to the Prepoint Pod. Thank you very much for coming on. No, thank you for your invite. So, Clifton, you are a physiotherapist by trade, That's but right. you specialize in two very unique and key areas um, treating performing artists and also treating people with hypermobility syndromes. Firstly, I'm interested for you to tell us about yourself and also your interest in performing arts healthcare. Yeah, so my interest in this area grew from playing violin growing up and um, then wanting to do it even in university, but I got told that being a performing artist is really hard (laughs) by my own parents. And um, so they encouraged me not to pursue it as a professional um, avenue. And um, so I went into physio, but then tried to prove them wrong. And so during physio school, I did music school at night and uh, enrolled in the masters of music. And then throughout it, I found that so many of my um, classmates were injured, <laughs> like more than half of them were injured. And because I was the resident physio, everyone was coming up to me asking for advice. And so he goes um, one year, two year, some of my colleagues still have the same injury from when they first started their degree. <laughs> and I'm like, this is ridiculous. And then I saw a wonderful advert in the APA, the Australian Physiotherapy Association magazine, advertising for a PhD candidate, looking at the um, professional orchestral musician injuries in Australia. And I went, I need to do this. And it's working with um, Dr. Bronwyn Ackerman, and who, you know, everybody knows, uh, is one of the first physios really um, sort of doing this in a research capacity uh, with the eight state symphony orchestras. And so this was a great opportunity and I had one semester left to do a research project. I'm like, forget that. I'm just going to graduate early and um, do 
a PhD in the area. And so that's how I got myself in there. And then things led to another. I started to join the Australian Society of Performing Arts Healthcare and then the American version, PAMA. And then through that got um, amazing collaborative opportunities with people who work with dancers. And that's how my hypermobility interest grew from there. So yeah, that's how I got into the field. And yeah, my physiotherapy sort of background led me to more occupational health, occupational medicine. Um, my other supervisor during my PhD was Professor Tim Driscoll, who's an epidemiologist and occupational health um, person. And, um, and my love for this area just grew. That's an, an awesome start to your career. So it, it is so interesting when I think you can see the influence that healthcare can have on performing arts firsthand. And that a must that must have been a little bit um, difficult for you because I know obviously being you know a new physiotherapy student, you feel a bit overwhelmed by everything that you're learning and you feel as though you should be able to help these people. But at the same time, you're like, hang on a minute, I, I need some time to work this out for myself. Um, but yeah, right. Especially like coming out as a new graduate, yeah. um, looking at the evidence, I'm like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that musicians got injured this much because no one talked about it when you're going through high school. And I'm sure people did, but you know, they just dropped off, but no one stayed to talk about it. And the teachers never told you anything. And um, so then I looked in the research, I'm like, there's nothing here. Oh, Bronwyn Ackerman's name came up a few times, and but that's it. Like, there was nothing to guide management and the advice. I couldn't tailor my advice. I had to really adapt it from all other sports evidence. I suppose also with dancers, it's probably the same for musicians. There's a very much a like a show must go on kind of mentality too um, in performing arts. So do you think that that might have been part of the reason that you didn't know about it until you were immersed in it? I think so. I think, um, you know, I always hung around the elite <laughs> groups or the people who are super passionate at what they do and they would do whatever it takes to um, make the show go on. I still remember um, myself in year 12 going through uh, music extension and um, the you know, during halfway through the recital, the air conditioner turned on in the entire building and uh, blew music and I was playing off memory. So it blew music everywhere and I was shocked and that's always stayed in my, in my memory and, you know, and it interrupted me and I couldn't play from memory, like in a performance capacity for a long time. And um, another player, a trumpeter, I remember in my year 12 had performance anxiety, but no one knew what it was. So we just saw her crying or shaking in backstage and thought, oh, she must be going through some trauma um, or family issues, but no one knew of anything. So in hindsight, these were the things that happened. Um, but yeah, the show must go on. We just have to push on and bury it until, you know, you get through it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess in the time that has in the time since you've graduated and finished those two degrees at the same time, just casually. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, through joining ASPA and, you know, being a practitioner yourself, you've seen some change. What are some of the things, this might be going a bit off track, but what are some of the things that you have seen change over the, those years? It's 
Yeah, thanks for asking that question. That's just given me goosebumps all over. I'm going, wow, there actually has been change. Um, probably the biggest change is at the top end. So Bronwyn and, and you know, the sound practice team has really uh, drafted a work occupational work and safety sort of type of booklet induction manual for orchestras around Australia. Um, from an other organisation perspective, Australian National Academy of Music has a health and wellbeing wellness module in their entire time that candidates are there. Um, I'm uh, been quarterly invited down to run two or three day sort of uh, clinics and talks at small group and individual level. Um, uh, the orchestras now still sometimes contact us um, during lockdown, for example, they know the musicians were coming out of lockdown and they will be increasing and ramping up their playing. Mm. And they asked for some um, online streaming workshops and things like that, that I ran like Melbourne Symphony, um, even the Australian um, sort of Air Force or the Army band, music band asked for a presentation as well. So we see that this is the awareness, number one, yeah, that people acknowledge it now and are much more open to talking about it. So that is improving. And I've definitely seen that. And um, now more uh, healthcare practitioners, I don't have to like have just, you know, the few numbers on my phone to call. There are now more practitioners all over Australia. And um, it's great to see that music is catching up to dance a little bit and um, sort of being a little bit more proactive, having things that are more mainstay rather than band-aid fixing um, that perspective. So yeah, it's quite encouraging, um, but still got a long way to go, but important steps in the last 10 years that I've been researching this area. Yeah, I think that's that's really important to, yeah, to reflect and see sort of how far, I guess, yeah, both musicians' health but also and dancers' health has, has come in that time. And then it's exciting really for the future because you know now that there is such a growing network of people who can help and to be part of that, it's even better. <laughs> exactly, like yourself. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So <laughs> this, is, this is, yeah, it's really great to talk to you because I feel like we have a lot of things in common and, um, that there's probably a specific, like a certain prevalence of hypermobile musicians and hypermobile dancers. Can you tell us a little bit about what hypermobility is um, and how do you know how prevalent it is in dancers and in musicians? Like, Yeah, so that's an interesting, two interesting questions. So um, something's going to be published in the next month or so where an international group of researchers in hypermobility actually has come to a consensus on what hypermobility is. So that's getting published next month. Um, Leslie led it and I was a senior author on it. And it's very exciting that the Australians led the way, but um, it was an input from international collaborators. And now we do recognize um, hypermobility as an increase um, in range of motion of a joint um so just keeping that quite simple and that it is could be the articular surface so someone's born with more articular cartilage so there's more surface um, to move um the ligaments are a bit more lax um so and that's hyper though is we should reserve that for like the top sort of five percent of the population it needs to be excessive Okay, so it's not the normal population. I mean, the person could be healthy and normal, but we're talking about just the hypermobility of that joint 
should be excessive compared to their peers that are relevant um, in terms of their age and sex. So hypermobility based on age and sex and ethnicity should be um, excessive. So top 5%. And then if we want to talk about generalized joint hypermobility is that someone's got hypermobility ideally in four more joints of the body and ideally in not just the arm and not just the leg, but somewhere in the arm, somewhere in the leg and somewhere in the spine. Yeah, okay. I guess two sort of different ideas of, or two different classifications for two different um, classes of hypermobility or diagnoses yeah. of hypermobility? Yeah. Yeah. So you know, with hypermobility, yeah. we're trying to not use the word diagnosis because yeah. you're, it's not a uh, disease or disorder or anything because it's just really a description. So you could have one joint that's hypermobile and you can have many joints that are hypermobile, but they're all asymptomatic. And that's sort of the good news. Most people with hypermobility are asymptomatic, go through most of their life with no problems, unless you, you know, get you know, bumped or something in your hypermobile joint and it becomes symptomatic. But most people actually with hypermobility don't have problems. And that's the best thing about this. Yeah, it's, I think clinically I see dancers told that they're hypermobile and it becomes almost a little bit of a panic factor, but mm -hmm. It, and it, I guess if something is hurting, like, you know, somebody could be hypermobile or not hypermobile and still have a painful joint. It's not necessarily a cause for alarm. Is that correct? Absolutely. I, yeah. Absolutely not a no cause for alarm. But and then you just consider it if you're doing a certain type of activity. We know if you're doing um, contact sports and you're hypermobile we, and it depends on which joint that type of mobile, then, um, yeah, you could potentially do some strengthening uh, to increase increase the stability, the active stability around a joint or increase your awareness. So your proprioception and things like that, but it isn't cause for alarm. And we don't have strong enough data that, you know, people who are hypermobile do have significant increases in injury um, in lots of things. And maybe contact sports is the place where we're particularly aware and probably we can say hypermobile people are at increased risk of injury, but in most other things, it isn't, or we don't have enough good, strong data to support that. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a really important take home message. So on that note, can hypermobility actually be a good thing? Thing. It actually can. It yeah. absolutely, absolutely can. Um, it can be protective because if you've already got the natural um, turnout, for example, from the hips, that external rotation and abduction, then you're not compensating with twisting or increasing rotation at the knee. And therefore you don't uh, stress the ligaments there. So yeah, it can be protective. Um, where we see people who don't have it at the hips, they'll compensate elsewhere. And that's when you know, other things can happen. And, you know, we don't have great knee rotation muscle strength. Yeah. <laughs> not easy. It's not easy to um, retrain rotation of the knee, you know, like, oh, the, the hamstrings, you know, we need to teach the hamstrings <laughs> better control, a bit like a horse controlling a horse's head, you know, with two hamstrings on the side. That's, that's not that easy. So, um, you know, Having strong hips is great, but having hypermobile hips and having that range at the hips is really amazing. Um, so, so things like turnout and developpe and arabesque splits. That's right. Yeah. 
That's right. Yeah. And, you know, just having the knees, if you've got hyperextension of the knee, then you don't have to stress, you know, the posterior capsule of the knee, for example. But then, you, yeah, but the big message here is, just because you've got that range doesn't mean you abuse it either. <laughs> yeah, true. So yeah, before you were talking about increasing active stability at a joint, and I guess like that active stability comes from muscles. So mm. having strong muscles that can control the hypermobility, it means your muscles probably need to work a little bit harder, I guess, to control the range of movement that you have because you have more than the average person, right? You do. And I mean, it does work harder initially, but if you train long enough, then um, the muscle gets bigger. And then again, it's uh, maximum voluntary contraction. The MVC does reduce again. So you just grow bigger muscles and uh, it works at a lower capacity. It's a bit like practice and training, right? If you're going to perform 10 push-ups, but if you can do 20, doing 10 is effortless. So that's what we just need to train. And, you know, that end of range, your hypermobile range, we really absolutely should stop being scared of it. I mean, if someone naturally has it, it's normal for their body. So, you know, you can go into it, work into it, but it's just, again, what I said, don't abuse it. Don't like go into like rapid and go really fast into it and go bone on bone smash <laughs> into it or in you know taking biomechanics lessons you know if we're weight bearing for a joint you want bone surfaces to be well aligned so you've got maximum contact between two um contact you know cartilage surfaces so you want to align it you don't want to be in your hyper for example extent like doing a push-up you want to align your arms so they're not in hyperextension when you're at the top all the time because that's not smart so it's about learning how to use it um, strengthening into the hypermobile range and um, yeah having strength there so especially open chain activities there's no reason why you don't um, strengthen into the um, hypermobile range with open chain activities this makes me feel better about myself at the gym, always trying to control my overhead press with my hypermobile elbows. It's okay if they accidentally go beyond neutral. <laughs> Absolutely, you should. When I'm, when I'm working, you know, treating patients, mobilizing patients, um, they definitely probably go into my hypermobile range. So I'll just see that as a functional task. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. So I guess sometimes, yeah, like I love the way that you um, explain the fact that you're trying to align joint surfaces and that's kind of what helps create stability as well. So sometimes when we're pushing into like knee hyperextension, for example, or elbow hyperextension, because the joint surfaces aren't aligned, like does that then change um, the capacity of the muscle to produce force around the joint? This is a very technical question. Yeah, but... yeah. I mean, the short answer is yes, you're probably correct because in your hypermobile range, depending on which muscle, you know, the agonist or the antagonist that you're activating, they're either in a more shortened or more lengthened range. So unless you train them there, um, they don't get stronger. So if you're not used to that movement in that end of range, then you have very little strength. So that's why I said really learn to strengthen it in that range. But as um, with alignment, you want forces to travel in straight lines. And that's how you allow, you know, forces to, um, I guess, transfer through the body. And that's how you don't injure joints because you're not loading one specific area. We all know that pressure equals force over area. You want maximum area. So you reduce the pressure on joint surfaces. 
So mm. when you're in your hypermobile range, usually there's less contact between the two surfaces. Yeah, that's, I guess that's sort of leading into my next question is like, what are some, some concerns that hypermobile dancers have? And I guess often it can be hard to actually get stronger because of the excessive range that you have to control with your muscles. But I guess proprioception and sensing where your joints are in space, if you have more contact of a joint surface, I'm guessing that that's actually then harder to control because there's more to control. Is that also that's correct? Right. Yeah. yeah. If you've got more range, you've got more work to do. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, and sensing is, a, we do have pretty frequent data. It's not strong, but multiple studies have said proprioception is a little bit worse. Um, and, you know, you've just got <laughs> probably uh, more range in a joint to represent in your brain as well. So all of that's harder. But another interesting thing that no one thinks about is self-image when you're hypermobile. Often people who are hypermobile may not consider themselves hypermobile, especially dancers when they're in an environment where lots of people are hypermobile. They go, I'm not hypermobile, look at them. I'm yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, um, no, you you are hypermobile. <laughs> yeah. So this is relevant to you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting actually, a couple, well, it was a few years ago now at the ballet company that I work at, we actually did some testing with the dancers. And I think one of the other things that, you know, dancers worry about is not being hypermobile. And is that a disadvantage for you when you're a dancer? And it was really interesting because we found that like probably the company were represented on a bell curve. So I guess like in terms of averages, like a bell curve, most people sit in the middle of the bell curve and then a few people sit out toward the tail ends. And it was exactly like that in the company. So some of the professional dancers were at that extreme end of hypermobility, whereas some of them were at the extreme end of not hypermobile, like being hypermobile. Most of them sat somewhere in the middle. And I don't really know if it was, you know, skewed. I can't quite remember exactly the statistics, but um, it sort of goes to show that whilst a lot of dancers are hypermobile and generally it can be like easier for you to sort of get to those positions like you were saying like having good turnout and probably even pointing your foot far enough it's still possible to have a career in dance when you're not at that extreme end yeah absolutely i mean your body as i said earlier does compensate and if you learn the compensations and know what your compensations are and you strengthen it up then you protecting yourself and it becomes okay and it becomes okay for your body because you're slowly increasing those compensations and you're aware of them and you're strengthening and talking to your health um, exercise professionals about it so you're, you're aware you're not just um, putting your body on the line and not looking after it mm. And I guess this is another aside question too, but is it the same for musicians? Is being hypermobile advantageous for musicians? I think very similar to dancers. It depends on what joint, um, yeah, right. joint specific. So, uh, you know, musicians like to have that hypermobility between the first finger and the second finger between the thumb and the index just so they can reach more on an instrument or the piano things like that um a bit of extra supination pronation so that rotation in the forearm is great for a lot of instrumentalists but you certainly don't want hypermobility in the shoulders because um <laughs> that's not advantageous um because you know your fingers and your forearm those muscles sort of need a strong foundation and your foundation yeah 
foundation comes from your um, shoulder joint and your scapula, your shoulder blade. So yeah, just like um, dancers, you want nice hip and some ankle hypermobility. That's where you want it. You sort of don't want too much knee. <laughs> you want your knee to be nice and strong to be that link. Um, your, your lower limbs are strong as all your, your weakest link. And um, midfoot is an interesting one. Um, yeah. mid, a lot of midfoot compensations, um, especially if you don't have the hypermobility in the ankle. And so, yeah, that's a nice big cohort of dancers, especially pre-professional that have a um, lot of midfoot hypermobility and not coming from the ankle. So yeah, it, it depends on the joint and what that function of the joint is. So ideally you don't want major weight bearing joints to be super hypermobile. Mm. That's a general thing with musicians, but you want the uh, wrist to be hypermobile. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. It's almost ex exactly the same for dancers, but with the lower limb. Like, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, performing artists. Is <laughs> yeah. how do I know if I'm hypermobile? Um, so how do we know? How do we know? <laughs> do we know? Well, the quick and dirty. We most of us know the Biden score, which is you know the hyperextended elbows, the knee, uh, the thumb to the forearm, those, and you know standing up and palm to floor. So that's a quick, dirty twenty-second test. We in research we've sort of given it a big slap on the wrist because it doesn't do a lot of things, but it was never designed that way. It was really quick designed to see whether someone um, is hypermobile or not in terms of a general perspective, because it's trying to capture big joints. But um, for a dancer, we do recommend people getting assessed using the lower limb assessment scale. And that assesses the hips in um, multiple direction and um, the knee and all the ankle and foot joints. So that is probably a better scale. And so with dancers, if you get seven out of the 12 tests positive, then you have lower limb and generalized joint hypermobility. Hmm. I definitely use that one in my pre-point assessments. Um, and it's very, I guess, it takes a lot of practice to get it right. If you are a physiotherapist listening, like there are a lot of very specific instructions about positioning the joint to make sure that you're doing the test correctly. Yeah. Um, but also like it's, I find it when I'm with my patients, it's one of the first things that I do in, so for example, a pre-point assessment, but I then find I have to do a lot of explaining around it as well. And I think going back to what you were saying before, explaining that it's not a disadvantage, it can actually be an advantage. Um, why is it useful? It's useful to know which joints are more hypermobile so that I can give you strengthening exercises that are specific to those areas, et cetera, et cetera. But I find that it's it can be quite a confusing concept for a lot of patients and they get a bit worried. <laughs> Yeah. when I start yeah they, they can get worried during the testing because they're like oh my god you're doing yeah that. no one's done because everyone's if they're coming to you they've done the biotin for sure but the lower limb assessment they haven't but I feel like the conversations that it opens is very useful for them mm -hmm. like when we go look at these tests all these tests that we've done that are positive are all in a certain plane of movement we're like yeah okay so if all of them are in this certain plane the sagittal plane for example so your flexion extensions your dorsiflexion plantar flexion um, then have we got any strength and exercises that target them? And we look at your exercise program, no, nothing. So, you know, that's where we have to put some in. And, or, it, you know, what I usually find is the rotatory ones that people are hypermobile and have no, nothing for. And so 
that you know the massive gap in their rehab or in their strengthening program whatever it may be and so they're like no wonder my ankle's not getting better and because your hypermobility is in a certain direction and you've been given exercises that don't target that at all and so it's got nothing to do with like and actually they're really relieved they go oh, it's not just me and there is hope, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's a good message for, you know, physios treating dancers and a good reminder for me as well. Um, like all of us. <laughs> when I'm, yeah, all of us. Yeah, to make sure that we're looking at the different directions of, of force and, yeah, whether you're strengthening somebody into rotation as well as the up and down, up and down or side to side mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, I'm thinking about the ankle. Um, there are some really good examples with that one. Yeah, definitely. Because yeah. it's the foot, you know, the foot and the ankle joint, they're, they're so complex because they have so many little joints. With the with the Biton score, I'm also interested in your opinion. So I've been told before that it's not actually valid for people who are under 16, but like what what is your take on that? Probably an evidence-based take on that is we need to be using cutoffs that are age and gender appropriate. Mm. Um, sorry, age and sex. Um, sex is your biological um, status. So because that determines more your um, anthropometry and all of that. Um, so a few years ago now, we've published a data set, an Australian data set across the lifespan and we actually found that the common cutoff of four or more should only be reserved for us like women that are uh, 30 to 49 um and males that are 40 and above or something like that i've forgotten it off the top of my head but it's specific age group in um, both the sexes and so if you're below 14 you need to be way higher um if you're a female you need to have get six out of nine and your male you need five out of nine then plus on the dancing factor because you've got dance training you're more hypermobile than the average um population so you add one to that you need to get seven out of nine <laughs> so you know it's much higher for that young dancing cohort yeah that's really important to consider i think yeah so that paper will be really useful sing um sing et al uh 2017 i think cool oh. <laughs> got the references off the top of your head <laughs> enough time you're, you're walking walking big bibliography uh, right that's good. good i probably am too to be fair you will um. be <laughs> So I guess, you know, my next question was, you know, are there any special things hypermobile dancers need to do to perform well and stay healthy? But I think we've covered the main the main sort of approach there, which would be to just yeah, stay I think we have. But the thing is, I think don't always, okay, performing artists are very in tune with their body. Great. We know that. We've actually got a few studies in musicians and I'm probably sure there are a few in dancers that, dancers and musicians are very aware and that's great because it you know early awareness is how you dress things but i feel like with both dancers and musicians they they always think stretching is the solution to everything and if you're hypermobile in a joint it's unlikely that stretching it will make it feel better <laughs> it will probably make it might make it feel better in the short term mm -hmm. um but not it's not going to solve the problem so i think just be very careful that if hypermobility is a problem 
and it's a problem for a particular joint and it's playing up, um, be very careful with excessive stretching. And there's also why you might feel that joint is tight. So that's an important thing. Just because your joint's tight, it could be the muscles that are shortened. Yes, it could be the capsule that is um, more tight than usual. Um, but if you're hypermobile, that's unlikely. But it could be, your muscles might be high tone. So it might be protecting the joint because the joint already went into excessive mobility. So it's trying to protect it. So you need to be careful that you're not actually removing the protection mechanism. Mm. And so I think needing to know when to stretch and when not to stretch is important. And when you don't know, do see a healthcare professional like a physio who can sort of have a good thorough assessment of you to see whether, or okay, stretching's not your solution right now. Actually, let's strengthen a certain set of muscles and that will bring the muscles that are spasming and protecting the joint down in its tone and you won't feel tight anymore. Or it could be a nutrition issue if it's happening in more than one joint and it's systemic. So I think if it's not working, don't keep using stretching um, for a long period of time to solve your problem because if it is a shortened muscle and you stretch it for a couple of times, then the problem should be solved, but if it's not changing, don't keep bashing it with stretching. Yeah, that's a good a good piece of advice. Yeah, and so you mentioned nutrition before. Like, are there does hypermobility affect other parts of the body as well, um, like digestion? So, or? Yeah, interesting because um, hypermobility is related to connective tissue, and mm-hmm. connective tissues in every, nearly every system of the body, and but. I sort of mentioned before that most people with hypermobility are asymptomatic and that could be a single joint, multi-joint. So these people um, usually that could just be happening in the joint, but then there are some people where this hypermobility do extend beyond the musculoskeletal system and is more systemic. And so for these people with more systemic hypermobility, it can affect their gut. So it affects their gut mobility, affects absorption and things like that. And it could extend to your vascular um, so blood pressure and affecting, you know, if you're changing positions from lying to standing and sitting, things like that, that, so you can get orthostatic intolerance. So yeah, it can extend beyond just the muscle joint system and affect yeah. gut. And so absorption can be a problem. Mm-hmm. And IBS is often the first thing people recognize if they do have something that's beyond just the muscle, um, bone joint system. Yeah. Okay. And so like, who would a dancer see if they were worried that their hypermobility was maybe affecting their digestion? Uh, Probably the first, I mean, if you're seeing a physio already, then a physio could run through the 2017 um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome type criteria very briefly. Um, Physios can't diagnose, but we can at least go "Mm," identify, yeah, you do have things that are beyond just the muscle joint system. Mm -hmm. And then if then your physio can make a recommendation to um, potentially be seen by a rheumatologist or a clinical geneticist who can run further tests to see what other systems might be affected. And obviously you need to get a referral from your GP for that, those tests. Mm. And, um, but if, you know, at the end of the day, if it's really just um, nutrition, then um, yeah, obviously directly see your dietitian and nutritionist. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really important advice too. So I guess Erla Danlos is 
a type of hypermobility? How would you classify Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome? Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a uh, heritable disorder of connective tissue. So mm-hmm. it sort of falls under this big umbrella term um, and it sort of with Marfan syndrome, Lewitz deeds and osteogenesis imperfecta. So where it's a systemic, um, usually it's got a genetic marker and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome has 13 types. Unfortunately, the one that we, well, I researched, the hypermobility type is the one with no genetic marker yet. (laughs) (laughs) International study, trying to look for for it, but all the other types. So the good thing though, um, hypermobility Ehlers-Danlos syndrome isn't usually a, doesn't increase mortality and things like that. But the other, some of the other types of very serious can lead to earlier death and higher uh, mortality. Yeah, that's important to be aware of. The things that, you know, your physio might ask might direct them to refer you to a GP first, I guess, and then the GP would determine whether referral to a rheumatologist would be a good idea. So a rheumatologist is like, I guess, a, a joint doctor. They specialise in like arthritic conditions and things like that. Yeah. That's right. Well, and dancers usually are very high functioning, so usually don't have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but that's the absolute end of the spectrum. You can have something in between. So we call that hypermobility spectrum disorder. So you you don't quite meet the uh, criteria for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but you still have connective tissue or collagen um, issues that go beyond the musculoskeletal system. Mm. And I've also heard Clifton too, that um, mental health concerns can be somewhat more prevalent in people who are hypermobile. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, there's increasing evidence in the last four or five years of this. Um, I wouldn't say it's definitive, but Mm. the evidence and it's quite strong and building that um, in terms of depression, potentially even um, autism. uh, So anxiety, a lot of the mental health issues have some type of link with people with a systemic um, collagen um, deficiency. Okay. All these uh, disorders like Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they would be sort of um, other things to look out for, but again, it is possible to be hypermobile and not have Absolutely. And that would be the majority. And, you know, with that research, why I say you can't definitively say is it's almost the bird, you know, the chicken and the egg, you know, did you have the condition and then I'll build it or, you know, your depression and anxiety and all of that's been like increasing over the years. And then you got diagnosed and you're like, oh, these things affect each other or, you know, can, yeah, it's just hard to say. The causal link. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or you're already more prone to having depression and anxiety because of the condition. Yeah, it's hard to 100% say, but the research is showing that going that way. Yeah, okay. So watch this space, in other words. Yes. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Any other messages that you would like to add for young dancers, their parents and teachers? I think young dancers should enjoy themselves. <laughs> uh, That's a really I mean, good message. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Hypermobile or not, have fun. And, you know, if you're hypermobile, it's something fixable. It's mm-hmm. so easily fixed. You've got healthcare professionals like yourself who are so passionate about hypermobility and about fitness and strengthening. And it's something that's very fixable and doable. And so 
if you've got it, it's absolutely not the end of the world. And even if you're symptomatic, which is the, the minority, then um, people like you can absolutely treat it and keep it under wraps for an entire career. And probably the best message I can give is dancers who continue training, training in dance and doing, you know, warm-ups and all that, even throughout life into their 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s, they their health is immaculate it's when they stop training and stop doing exercise stop being active mm. that things fall apart so i would suggest that if you know you love dancing keep it up and don't stop <laughs> keep moving keep moving. yeah 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 no, that's excellent advice clifton thank you so my last question usually to my guests is what is your preferred pair of point shoes but would prefer to provide a review on a ballet that he has seen recently. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I saw American in Paris in Melbourne when it came out and I brought some of my friends who've never been to ballets before. And I thought, oh, this would be a really good way of introducing them to the ballet world. And I was absolutely completely blown away. I never been to a musical ballet and always thought, oh yeah, it's a bit like the music world's on Andre Brieur. <laughs> you know, it's, it's bit old, you know, very showy, a bit flashy. I didn't know what to think of it, but <laughs> I should really be careful saying that before. But anyway, um, it, it was really good. All my friends absolutely loved it. The music was amazing. The singing, I, I'm, you know, being a musician, the singing was important for me. And I'm going, wow, these dancers can sing as well. So very impressed. Are and you a Gershwin fan? Amazing. I actually am. I, but the thing is, I don't know whether I was just a fan of the dancing. I mean, you know, yeah. I go, I've seen multiple other ballets before and I've seen countless hours of ballet dancers rehearsing and dancing <laughs> when I'm doing my research. But I was actually equally mesmerized by music set and dancing, all three. So none of one like sort of stood out, which I thought was the perfect balance. I really, really enjoyed the whole time. There you go. I think that's an excellent way to finish our conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Um, and, and so Clifton, you still treat as well in Sydney. So if you are in Sydney, you can see Clifton, the physio, um, <laughs> and I'll put some details in the show notes for anybody who would like to catch up with Clifton in real life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Have a good afternoon. You too. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 